for the chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Frank has reminded us, at our last class we considered the visit of the wise men to the, uh, to the newly born, or not newly born, a few months old babe, the Lord Jesus Christ. They presented before him the gift that they had prepared and brought for that purpose. And having accomplished their mission, we read in verse 12 that being warned of God in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their country another way. And through the remaining part of this chapter, we read of the experiences of, the, of Joseph and Mary and the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were compelled to flee down into Egypt, which we're told was a, that the words of the prophet Hosea might be fulfilled, and we learn that, that of the um, murderous uh, outrage of Herod upon the young children of Bethlehem. Again, we're told that the prophecy of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. After Herod was dead, we read that Joseph was instructed to bring Mary and the young child back into the land of Israel. But being warned once more not to go to Bethlehem, but to travel up north to Galilee and to the city of Nazareth, again we read that this happened, that it might be fulfilled which was written by the prophets. And right through this section of, the, of, um, of Scripture, we find that Matthew is basing his, uh, his, his, his uh, history of the life of the Lord upon that which was revealed in the prophets. We noted last time when we came to consider the early part of this chapter that Matthew presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. The genealogy in chapter 1 follows through the royal line showing how the Lord Jesus Christ had a rightful claim to the throne of David. Here in chapter 2 we see that it is wise men or magi from the east that come looking for he who is born King of the Jews. And Matthew is writing his gospel primarily for Jews. And he's presenting before them Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. We find through this section that in presenting Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, Matthew has got to convince the Jewish mind that Jesus of Nazareth is the one in fact promised in the word of the prophets. And so we find him repeatedly going to the writings of the prophets and showing how the writings of those prophets were fulfilled in this young child who grew into a man uh, who, who, who uh, lived a perfect life and was offered as a sacrifice. We need to remember, of course, that when Matthew wrote this account, the life of the Lord, his mortal life anyway, was over and finished with. So that, that as he wrote these things, as he, as he quoted these passages from the prophets and wrote his comments concerning them, the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ was an accomplished fact at that time. And so he's not just looking at that helpless babe being carried down to Egypt and being brought out of Egypt. He's looking at that man that, 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 to, into which that babe developed. He's looking at the completed life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he looks back to these early events in his life, he sees how graphically the words of the prophets were fulfilled in this man. And he's labouring to prove to the Jewish mind that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they rejected, was in fact the Messiah of Israel. And he labours through these places, showing that first, their Messiah must come as a sacrifice. First, he would be despised and rejected of men, and then he would reign as a glorious king. And so through these verses of Matthew chapter 2, not only do we see the providential care that Yahweh exercised towards his son, preparing him and watching over him in his early days. But we see also Matthew's endeavours to show the Jewish people 
the correct exposition of scripture. He was writing to people who knew their scriptures. We see that from, as uh, Frank reminded us, from, um, from verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. When the question was put to them, where is the Messiah to be born? They had no problem at all in answering in Bethlehem of Judah because it was written in the prophets. But Matthew is trying to show those people how to rightly interpret the words of the prophets, how to correctly understand what the prophets were saying. And so many wise men had performed their mission, they presented their gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ, they bowed down before him and paid homage to him, recognising that he was destined to be a glorious king in the earth at some future time. But now, of course, the jealousy of Herod had been kindled. And there was a certain urgency about things now. Bethlehem wasn't far out of Herod's reach, as we saw last time. Soldiers on horseback could be there in half an hour. So there was an urgency about the whole situation now. And we see that God intervenes. And the wise men, having performed their mission... We read in verse 12 that they were warned of God in a dream. God, through the medium of a dream, an angel appeared unto them and warned them that they must not go back to Herod but depart to their own country by another way. It's quite interesting when we look at Matthew chapters 1 and 2 for we find there are five dreams referred to in those two chapters. Joseph received four of them and the wise men received the other. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20 Joseph has a dream in which he's told don't be afraid to take unto thee Mary thy wife because she is with child of the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 2 verse 12 the wise men have a dream. They're warned of God not to go back to Herod. In, um, in verse 13 Joseph has a dream and he's warned to arise, go down to Egypt, because Herod's going to seek the young child to destroy him. In verse 19 we read, when Herod was dead, behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, arise and go back to the land of Israel. In verse 22, Joseph again being put in a plight, uh, he has an, another dream, he's warned of God again in a dream to, to, to go north into the region of Galilee. And there's five dreams there that were given for the preservation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five, of course, is a number of grace. It's quite interesting, you know, when we go back to the book of Genesis and we look at the life of Joseph. Joseph, who was taken down into Egypt as a forerunner of, of, of the children of Israel and Jacob and his other sons going down into Egypt later. You know, it was five dreams in Egypt that brought that all about. Joseph had two dreams before he left his father's house. The, the baker and the butler had each had a dream down in Egypt. And then Pharaoh had a dream. And out of those dreams, Joseph was, was banished to Egypt... He was cast into prison, he was brought out of prison and he was elevated to the governor of the land. And in Genesis 45 and verse 7, Joseph pointed out to his brethren that that was all done for the preservation of Israel, that Israel might be preserved as a nation. And there were five dreams given at that time. It might appear that Pharaoh had two dreams. But Joseph told Pharaoh that the dream was one. It was really only one dream. And so there were five dreams there which led to the preservation of Israel as a nation in Egypt. And here we find that in the early days of the Lord Jesus Christ there's five dreams given for the preservation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of some of those dreams the Lord Jesus Christ is taken down into Egypt. And so it's quite interesting to note that there were five dreams the number of grace. And they were given for the purpose of preserving and protecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, we read that the wise men 
departed into their own country another way. So, bypassing Jerusalem this time, they get out of the land of Israel and back to their country in the east. We're not particularly told exactly what country it was. The inference was that it was Babylon. We find that Daniel was in Babylon, the Magi were in Babylon. And so, the wise men in all probability returned to the country of Babylon. Quite interesting really when we come to the epistle of Peter. In the first epistle of Peter chapter 5 and verse 13 we read the words of Peter. The ecclesia that is at Babylon elected together with you saluteth you and so doth Marcus my son. I wonder if those wise men had anything to do with the forming of that ecclesia at Babylon. But it indicates that there over there in the east at Babylon there were faithful men, at least at that many years later at the times of Peter. And of course there must have been faithful men there before to bring these wise men from the east to pay homage to the newly born king of the Jews. And so the wise men depart bypassing Jerusalem, escaping from Herod's attention, they get back to their own country. And we read in verse 13, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And so the wise men, having set out on their journey, the angel now visits Joseph and he says, Arise and get out of this place, right out of the land of Israel, go down into Egypt, because Herod is going to seek this young child to destroy him. We read in verse 14 that he arises and he takes Mary and, and the babe by night into Egypt. And the inference is that he wasted no time at all. The angel appeared to him in a dream, presumably in the night. And we read that Joseph arose in the night, and took Mary and the young child and went into Egypt. It would indicate that that Joseph saw the urgency of the situation and that he acted promptly. He wasted no time at all. As soon as he got that message, he gathered together the things that they needed and they were on their way in the night. He probably found it expedient to leave by night also so that he could slip away out of Bethlehem without anyone knowing without anyone asking him, where are you going? Where are you off to? Why are you leaving in such a hurry? By slipping away at night he could escape all that. When the people woke up in the morning, they just weren't there. They were gone. And and nobody would know where they'd gone or why. And so we see that there was an urgency about the whole thing. And Joseph and Mary were moved quickly out of that region of Bethlehem. Nobody really knowing where they had gone. We see that they depart and they travel down south. They travel from Bethlehem, probably down through Hebron, and then south, right down into Egypt. They'd be retreading the very path, probably, that Joseph of old was dragged down by the Midianites to be sold in the slave markets of Egypt. Probably following the same path as Jacob, and his, and his other sons as they travelled down later down to meet Joseph and be reunited with him down in Egypt. Hebron was a little south of Bethlehem. Hebron was the place where Joseph uh, and um, uh, uh, Jacob and his sons were dwelling at that particular time. And so they would probably travel the same path down into Egypt. And we read in verse 15 a very interesting statement. That this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Out of Egypt 
have I called my son. And the word fulfilled there means just what it says. It means fulfilled, to perform fully, to complete or to accomplish. You know, Matthew's not saying that, well, there was just a typical application of this prophecy in this set of circumstances. He's not saying, well, there was a partial fulfilment of these words. Matthew says that that prophecy was fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ as a babe was taken down into Egypt and brought back up out of Egypt into the land of Palestine. Those words are quoted from the 11th chapter of Hosea. If we go back to the 11th chapter of Hosea we'll find that in in chapter 11 and verse 1 we will find that statement that Matthew quotes. Hosea 11 and verse 1 When Israel was a child then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt and as they called them so they went from them they sacrificed unto Balaam they burned incense to graven images I taught Ephraim also to go taking them by their arms but they knew not that I healed them I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke of their jaws, and I I laid meat under them. Uh, He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities, and shall consume his branches and devour them, because of their counsels. My people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. They're the words of the prophet Hosea. And he's obviously speaking of the Yahweh's experiences with the nation of Israel. He's obviously taking us back to the time of the Exodus out of Egypt. When Yahweh called Israel out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness and established them in their own land. And yet Matthew says, Those words were fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ went down into Egypt and was brought back out of Egypt again into the land of promise. How can this prophecy be applying to the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ as a babe when it appears so plainly to be speaking of Israel in the past? Well, you see, when we look a little closer, I believe, we see what Matthew is driving at when he says it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1 there we read, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. There's two words there, we have the word child and the word son. And likewise there's two different words in the Hebrew. The word child means, well it means a child, the word Nahar means a boy and the emphasis of that word is upon the youthfulness it's on youthfulness or adolescence the emphasis is upon the immaturity of the child you see when Israel was an adolescent, a youth an immature uh, man or, or child then I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. It's a different word there, it's the word then. Very common word for the word son in the in the scriptures. It's derived from a word which means to build. Hence the emphasis is emphasis is on building the family name. It's a son as the builder of the family name. That's the son there. You see what Yahweh's saying in that verse I believe is this. But when Israel was down in Egypt, in a state of immaturity, then I extended my love to him. I called him out of Egypt. I brought him through the wilderness into the, in, in, into, and gave him a land of their own that they might accept the responsibilities of full sonship, that they might build a family for me. 
that they might be the builders of my family name. That's what Yahweh called them out of Egypt for. That they might assume the responsibilities of full, mature sonship. You probably say in verse 2, they called them, but they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam. with a son that never grew up. Israel never grew up to that maturity that Yahweh desired of them. You see, that's what, what the prophet Yahweh's lamenting through the prophet here. He says in verse 3, But when Israel was a babe, I took him by the hand and taught him to walk. And he didn't know that it was me that healed him. He says, look, I drew him with the cords of a man, with bands of, a lo- with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke of the jaws, and I laid meat under them. I, tr- I, I taught him to walk. I fed him with food convenient for him. I tried to nurture him and raise him up, that he might be a son, that he might, might assume the full responsibilities of sonship to build a family for me. Verse 7 though, but my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they call them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. Here was a son that never grew to maturity. You see, we go to the book of Galatians. In the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians, The Apostle says in verses 1 to 7, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, Israel never grew into that position. Israel remained under tutors and governors until the time appointed. Israel remained in bondage as children, in bondage under the elements of the world. They were in bondage under the pedagogos, the schoolmaster, to which he refers in chapter 3 and verse 24. They never grew to that maturity. You know, we go to the book of Matthew, chapter 23, and there the Lord Jesus Christ referring to the, to the uh, religious leaders of Israel, calls them a generation of vipers. In John chapter 8 verse 44, he says, You are of your father the devil. They weren't God's sons. They never grew up to be God's sons. God called them in the, out of Egypt that they might grow up to be his sons. He showed love to them. He tried in every possible way to cause them to grow up to maturity but that nation as a nation never grew up individuals in it might have but the nation remained in immaturity remained in bondage under the pedagogos of the law but you see Matthew's pointing out that the Lord Jesus Christ when he was in a state of immaturity went down into Egypt Yahweh called him out of Egypt Yahweh extended all the fatherly paternal love upon him and he grew up. We read how he grew in favour and stature with God and man. He grew to maturity. He fulfilled the responsibilities of true sonship. And he is a son who will build the family name of his father. And so that prophecy of Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 that I, when Israel was a child that I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt, was fulfilled in that man. It was never fulfilled in the nation of Israel because they never grew up to maturity. But the Lord Jesus Christ was a babe who did. He did grow up to be a true son of God. And therefore the prophecy of Hosea was fulfilled 
in him. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Christ was the ideal son. Called out of Egypt in immaturity, responding to his father's love, growing up and fulfilling the responsibilities of true, true sonship. And he will build a family for his father's name. You know, but that principle, as Brother Thomas shows in Eureka, that statement, out of Egypt have I called my son, it applies to God's sons of every sort. It did apply to Israel as God's uh, firstborn son, as they will be in the future age. They were called out of Egypt. The Lord Jesus Christ was called out of Egypt and fulfilled that prophecy in that he, he, he fulfilled the responsibilities of a son. We, brethren and sisters, are called out of Egypt likewise. We are called out of the world. God's love is extended unto us. His providential care is over us. He wants us to grow up to the responsibilities of sonship that we might build his, be, be like, like stones in, the, in, in, the, in his living temple. But what example will we follow? Will we be like Egypt? Who never grew to, like Israel who never grew to maturity? Having been called out of Egypt like they ever wanted to go back to Egypt? Will we be like that? Or will we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and grow to maturity in the truth and fulfil the responsibilities that Yahweh has laid upon us? We must endeavour, brethren and sisters, to look upon the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ideal son, the son that fulfilled his father's requirements. We must endeavour to follow his example lest we fall after the example of Israel of old. <coughs> and so we find that the Lord Jesus Christ was taken down into Egypt, that this prophecy might be fulfilled, seeing that it was never really fulfilled in the nation of Israel. But having Joseph and Mary and the Lord Jesus Christ, having departed from Bethlehem and travelled down to Egypt, we read in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So as the time went by, and the wise men didn't arrive back at Herod's palace. It became apparent for Herod that they had tricked him, that he'd been tricked of those wise men. And we read that he was exceeding wroth. That word wroth, the word, uh, a word which means to be stirred up into to a tumultuous state of mind. And we see the word exceeding, it means exceeding, very much or exceedingly. And knowing the or having learned something of the character of Herod. We can imagine the rage into which he was thrust as he realised that these wise men had not fulfilled the things that he had required of them. They'd escaped out of the country another way, failing to reveal to him where that young child was. And in that rage he sent forth and to be absolutely sure that he would, he would get the, 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 the child he was after, he commanded that every boy in Bethlehem and all the neighbouring districts of Bethlehem, anything that, be, that, 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 that could be counted as Bethlehem, he slew all the boys from two years old and under. I believe it was only the male children that he slew. There was no need for him to slay the, the girls. He knew that the one who was born king of the Jews would be a boy. And here in this particular place, the word there, translated children, although that word, the word pais, can refer either to a boy or a girl, nevertheless we find it here with the masculine article. It's used with the masculine article and it indicates that it was only the male children that were murdered in this particular way. And so all the boys in the whole district of Bethlehem under the age of two years 
were executed. They were slain. According to the time that he diligently inquired of the wise men. Now we learn in verse 7 that he diligently inquired of the wise men what time the star appeared. So he would have connected the first appearance of that star with the birth of that child. And according to the time that they revealed to him that they had first seen that star, we see that some considerable time had now elapsed. We saw last time how they had a journey of some considerable distance. It would take some considerable time. So to be absolutely sure that he got the child he was after, he commanded that every boy under the age of two must be slain. You know, children of two years old and under, particularly uh, of a very lovable age. Once a child is a few months old, an association has been built up between that child and the parents. They're a particularly lovable age uh, under two years. Now even the, even the naughty things they do are lovable at that stage. Later on they're not so lovable, but at, at that age they're lovable in everything that they do. And yet here, in all those happy little houses where those little young children were, the delight of the parents and the delight of the, the older brothers and sisters if they had any, Suddenly and unexpectedly to them there was Herod's soldiers going through that district searching every house and every little child of that age every boy of that age was ruthlessly dragged out and probably slain before their very eyes. Is it any wonder that we read in verse 18 that there was lamentation, weeping and great mourning throughout that land? Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. You see, when we look at the brutality of this man, a man approaching 70 years of age, what threat really was a young child of 18 months or two years old to his his throne anyway? He was going to be dead and buried before the child was old enough to, to sit upon a throne in any case. We see the absolute illogical character of this man a man of nearly 70 when he hears of a young child that's been born that's going to be a king he's thrown into this fit and he acts in this dreadful terrible way and he causes this bloodshed and this mourning throughout that region of the land just to preserve his own throne which he's going to lose anyway in fact he, he lost it before the little babe was even brought out back out of Egypt It's absolutely illogical but it shows us the dreadful outworkings of of flesh when it runs right and when the the, the passions of the flesh are, are kindled and stirred up in this way. And what a terrible act it was the slaying of those little children at that particular time. But once again you know that Matthew tells us here that this was done that the prophecy of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We read in verse 17 and 18, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. We find that this is quoted from the uh, 31st chapter of Jeremiah and at verse 15. Now Jeremiah 31 is a chapter that most of us are probably quite familiar with because it's one of those chapters we turn to to prove to the stranger outside the, the, the restoration of Israel. And really the whole of Jeremiah chapter 31 with the exception of these two or three verses in the middle of it is speaking gloriously of the restoration of Israel in the future under the Lord Jesus Christ. But here couched right in the middle of this chapter this glorious prophetic chapter of the future we read these words that Matthew quotes Thus saith Yahweh in verse 15 
A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith Yahweh, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith Yahweh, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith Yahweh, that thy children shall come again to their own border. And so here we read of, um, of the words of Jeremiah that Matthew quotes. And there in verse 15 we read of Rachel. It's written Rahel here, but it, it means Rachel, weeping for her children. Now Rachel was a mother in Israel. She was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And thus, as, as, the, uh, as the mother of Benjamin, she became the mother of uh, half the kingdom of Judah because Judah was made up of Judah and Benjamin. So she, she was represented in the southern kingdom, in Benjamin. But she was the mother of Joseph as well. And from Joseph came the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which were tribes in the north. So Rachel, very fittingly, represents both. She, she, she had particular interest in the southern kingdom and in the northern kingdom. So Rachel, very fittingly, represents both. She, she, she had particular interest in the southern kingdom and in the northern kingdom. And although the Lord Jesus Christ was to be born through the line of Leah, to the tribe of Judah, the son of Leah. Nevertheless, we learn from Genesis 49 that the Lord Jesus Christ was to be a man after the character of Joseph, who was Rachel's son. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, likewise, uh, had a relationship to, to both these, these aspects, to Judah, because his flesh descent was from Judah, but to Joseph, because his character was after the pattern of Joseph. And so Rachel, was a mother, being a mother in Israel, can be used very fittingly as a representative of that nation. Now as a mother of Israel, she had particular interest and concern in the nation of Israel. And here, figuratively, the prophet is showing her in bitter weeping and lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted because they are not. Quite interesting that when we go back to Genesis chapter 37 and verse 35. In Genesis 37 and verse 35 we read of Jacob when he heard that Joseph, when being deceived by his sons, he thought that Joseph had been torn to pieces by a wild beast. And he says, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down to the grave under my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And there was Jacob, refusing to be comforted and weeping over Joseph. And here in Jeremiah 31 we've got Rachel, his wife weeping and in bitter lamentation, refusing to be comforted because of what was befalling her children. And so, we, um, we find when we go over to Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 1, we see the reason why Jeremiah speaks in this way, why he mentions the place Ramah. Um, I may have got the wrong chapter there, but we have it here on the sheet of notes that was given you. Uh, Jeremiah 40 verse 1, I'm reading the wrong chapter, that's what's wrong. Um, and the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, after that Nebuchadnezzar Aden, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he had taken him, being bound in chains among all that were carried away captive of Jerusalem and Judah, which were carried away captive... To, unto Babylon. You see, when the Babylonians overthrew the city of Jerusalem, 
and they determined to carry, carry away the Jewish people captives. We see that they used this town of Ramah, which is five or six miles north of Jerusalem. They used this town of Ramah as a rallying post. And there they gathered together all the captives and bound them in chains to drag them away to Babylon. It was there that Jeremiah was released. But, but you see, that's why there was, in Ramah, a voice of lamentation was heard. So there was a fulfilment of that in the days of Jeremiah when the Babylonians herded together the captives at Ramah to drag them away to Babylon into captivity. And there we see, figuratively, Rachel is weeping and in bitter lamentation, weeping for her children because of the, the things that were befalling them. Because here the Babylonians were overthrowing that nation and her sons were going away into captivity. And it would seem at that time that, 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 that Israel had come to an end. Uh, that, that's on the surface of things of course and so Rachel was weeping for her children in that way we go right down through the history of the Jewish people and there's been time and time again that were occasion for Rachel weeping for her children Matthew picks out the point at Bethlehem the slaying of those innocent children at Bethlehem and he applies it to that particular time he gives it a very special application to that particular time. He says that which the prophet spoke was fulfilled in the, in the uh, surrounding circumstances of that particular time. Why was it that Matthew says it was fulfilled at that time? There are probably many applications of this. There was an application in Jeremiah's day. There was an application when the Lord, in, in the slaying of the children at Bethlehem. There had been an application in AD 70 when the Romans burst into that city and dragged the people away uh, to the slave markets of the world. All of those were occasions for Rachel to weep and lament for her children. But Matthew picks out this particular one and he gives it a very special application to the circumstances that surrounded the weeping and lamentation in Bethlehem at that particular time. You see, Rachel's tomb was at Bethlehem. So it's very fitting that he should use the figure of Rachel weeping for her children when the whole of that district was grief-stricken because of the evils that had been, been, been wrought upon that nation at that particular time. You know, when we look at what Jeremiah is saying, I believe we can come to understand a little more what Matthew means when he says it was fulfilled at that particular time. Is if you look at verse 16, Thus saith Yahweh, Refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith Yahweh, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And so it's as if as Yahweh looks upon Rachel, a mother in Israel, weeping over the blood of her sons, weeping over the fact that all her work and labour in raising up children had come to nothing because it was all in ruins and they were swept away into captivity. And Yahweh's comforting Rachel. He says, refrain from the voice of thy weeping and thine eyes from tears for thy work shall be rewarded. You know, the word work there, it just, well it means work. It means work or labour. It's quite well translated as it stands but in the context of these three verses what was Rachel's work Rachel's work was involved with her children it's her children that are the context of these three verses it's in the very cause of Rachel's lamentation was that all her work and labour in raising up children would appear to be of no avail but Yahweh says, look, it's not to no avail. Because in due course of time, the Messiah is going to come. And the Messiah will bring back the restoration of all things, as far as Israel is concerned. Rachel, in the future time, when she rises from the dead to bow down before Joseph, something she's never as yet done, she will see her children regathered. She will see her children brought back 
and be made a, a, a glorious nation in the earth and a glorious future before them. But you see, all that depended upon the bringing to the birth of the Messiah of Israel. And Matthew says that was fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And Matthew says that, 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 that the, 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 the weeping and the sorrow and the grief that swept Bethlehem at that time was just another of the birth pangs that actually brought to the birth the great Redeemer of Israel, the one who is going to restore Rachel's children back to their land in the future times. And he says all the sorrows and all the troubles of Israel's history were only like the birth pangs of Rachel travailing to bring forth that son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring about the restoration of all things in the future age. And so as Matthew views the the weeping and the lamentation that was sweeping Bethlehem and the surrounding district at that time, that he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, preserved out of that, taken down to Egypt, he sees that this was a fulfilment of that prophecy. And although there was weeping and lamentation in Bethlehem at that time, there was also cause for rejoicing because the Messiah had been born. The one, the great Deliverer and Redeemer was now in the earth and the ultimate restoration was assured. And so we read in verse 19, the Lord Jesus Christ is down in Egypt We read, But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. When Herod was dead. Historians tell us that Herod died approximately B.C. 4. He died a terrible death. Josephus describes it in quite some detail. Herod, before his death, appointed his youngest son, Antipater, as his heir. But Herod was so out of his mind at that time that five days before his own death, he had Antipater slain. Josephus tells us that Herod was smitten with a, a, an unnamed type of distemper. From how he describes it, it was a, 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 a dreadful disease. A disease virtually where the body corrupted while it was still alive. He died an agonising death. And Josephus makes the comment that it was God was retributing him for the evil of his own ways. In such a way, Herod passed off the scene. And an angel appears in a dream to Joseph down in Egypt. In verse 20 says to him, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And so it would seem that quite probably very soon, or at the time of Herod's death, or very soon afterwards, the angel appears to Joseph and says, It's safe now to go back to the land of Israel. Herod's dead. The ones that sought the young child's life are dead and gone. So once again, Joseph promptly obeys the, the, uh, the instructions of the angel. We see in verse 21 that he arose and takes the young child and his mother and comes into the land of Israel. You know, as they set out from Egypt, heading for the land of, Ju- of Judah once again, they would have been retracing the steps of Abraham. As he read in Genesis chapter 12, as he goes back up from Egypt, back up to the region of Bethel. Been retracing his steps and coming up out of Egypt, back into the land. It seems that Joseph and Mary intended to return to Bethlehem. Because we, we see that, that in verse 22, when he heard that, that uh, Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. He was afraid to go into Judea. 
And so it would seem that he intended to go back into Judea. Probably had every intention of going and returning to Bethlehem. They probably thought that from the prophet Micah, the indication was that they should live in Bethlehem where the, from whence the Messiah was to come. Possibly also they didn't want to go back to Nazareth because of the, the um, contempt with which they might be viewed back in that city because of the manner of, of, uh, of the, their marriage and the birth of their son and so forth. We don't know the reason. But for some reason it seems that Joseph and Mary had intended to settle at Bethlehem. They determined to go back to Bethlehem and reside there. But as they journey back up from the land of Egypt and they get near now to the, to the country of Judea, they, get, they, they receive news out of Judea. They hear that in the place of Herod, his son, Archelaus, is reigning. When he hears that, he's afraid to go hither. Now, Archelaus was one who started his reign with bloodshed. He started his reign by putting down a rebellion of the Jewish people. Many of the Jewish people rose up after the, after the death of Herod and they wanted many of the, the, the defiling things that Herod had done toward their religion and around the temple. He wanted them removed and reversed. And this, in due course, led to, to, to an uprising in which Archelaus had 3,000 people slain in the precincts of the temple itself. You know, on the death of his father, Archelaus, according to Josephus, uh, gave a speech to the people and he spoke to them in very gentle terms and he, he won the hearts of the people. By great subtlety he won the hearts of the people. But when he began his reign it was entirely different. Edeshine sums up, just in a few words, he sums up the reign of this character. He says he began his rule by crushing all resistance by the wholesale slaughter of his opponents. Of the high priestly office, he disposed after the manner of his father. But he far surpassed him in cruelty, oppression, luxury, the grossest egoism and the lowest sensuality and that without possessing the talent or the energy of Herod. His brief reign ceased in the year 6 of our era when the emperor banished him on account of his crimes to Gaul. And so we see he proved to be nothing short of an animal. He surpassed his father in cruelty, oppression and so on and so forth without even possessing the talent and the energy that Herod had. At least Herod had that about him, that he was a talented man and in certain ways he was an able ruler. But this character was nothing short of an animal. And when Joseph heard that he was reigning in Judea and probably heard of the massacres and the bloodshed that was going on, he was afraid to go back there. And he had good reason probably to be afraid to go back there. Because what would happen if this character was to hear, uh, here's the young child that's to be the king of the Jews. And so Joseph was put into a quandary. He had determined to go back to Bethlehem, but now he was afraid to go to Bethlehem. But once again we find that divine intervention takes place. And we read there at the end of verse 22 that notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. So once again in a dream an angel appears unto him and tells him not to go into Judea but to travel north into the region of Galilee. And so we read in verse 23 that he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And so, at a very young age, the Lord Jesus Christ arrived at Nazareth. We don't know what age, possibly three years old, maybe four, maybe younger, we don't know. But at a very young age, he arrived at Nazareth. And it was at Nazareth that he spent by far the greatest part of his life. Assume he was three when he arrived at Nazareth. He was 30 when he left Nazareth to go down to John to be baptised. At 27 years he lived in Nazareth. 27 years of his life was spent in that city. Now, we on the 
brief notes that we gave out. We have compiled just a little description of Nazareth. I've never been to Nazareth myself. I know there's ones here who have. I've never been there, but what I've put here upon the sheet is only culled from the writings of people that have. They're mainly from uh, Adam Smith's um, Historical Geography of the Holy Land. There's a little bit from Edershine and so on, and we just put it together to try and paint a little picture of what Nazareth would have been like. So just reading through that to try and paint a little picture of this town we read The village of Nazareth lies on the most southern ranges of Lower Galilee just above the plain of Estralon. Nestled among the hills Nazareth was a scene of tranquil homely beauty with its rows of flat roofed houses watered terraced gardens gnarled wide-spreading fig trees, graceful feathery palms, scented orange orchards, silvery olive trees, thick hedges and rich pasture land. Just outside the town in the northwest, bubbled the spring or well, the meeting place of the townspeople and welcome resting place of travellers. From Nazareth itself, you cannot see the surrounding country for it rests in a basin among the hills, as in an amphitheatre fifteen hilltops rise around it. That to the west is the highest, about five hundred feet. Climbing this steep hill, fragrant with aromatic plants and bright with rich coloured flowers, a view almost unsurpassed opens to the eyes. The plain of Estralon lies before you, with its ancient battlefields. The scene of Barak's and of Gideon's victories, the scene of Saul's and Josiah's defeats, the scenes of the struggles for freedom in the glorious days of the Maccabees. There is Naboth's vineyard and the place of Jehu's revenge upon Jezebel. There's Shunem and the house of Elisha. There can be seen Mount Carmel and the place of Elijah's sacrifice. To the east, the valley of the Jordan with the long range of Gilead. To the west, the radiance of the great sea with the ships of Tarshish and the promise of the isles. From this spot could also be seen emerging from the Sumerian hills the road from Jerusalem thronged annually with pilgrims and the road from Egypt with its merchants going up and down. The Midianite caravans could be watched for miles coming up from the fords of Jordan and the caravans from Damascus wound around the foot of the hill on which Nazareth stands. So Nazareth, the quiet little town, was not a stagnant pool of rustic seclusion. Men of all nations, busy with another life than that of Israel, would appear in its streets, and through them thoughts, associations and hopes connected with the outside world would be brought before the attention of the people of Nazareth. And that's the picture that such writers as Adam Smith and Edershine paint of this little town of Nazareth which was the home of the Lord Jesus Christ for some 26 or 27 years. It was in the environment of that little city, or that little town, that the Lord Jesus Christ grew up and grew in favour and stature with God and man. It was in that little city that he grew in wisdom and, 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 uh, and the, the foundations of that perfect life were laid. Now we see that, that um, in verse 23 we read and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets he shall be called a Nazarene. Now there's something we need to understand about Nazareth as we read that little picture it, found, it, it, it seems a, a most beautiful idealistic uh, environment for, for anyone to grow up in. But you see, there's one thing about Nazareth also. And that is that this is the first place in the scriptures, or it's in the gospel records, in, in chronologically in, in Luke. The first place we find Nazareth mentioned is here, associated with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, in history, nothing of any consequence had ever happened at Nazareth. 
Nothing great had ever happened in Nazareth. No great person had ever come out of Nazareth. Nothing of any note had ever happened there. So the Jewish people said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because historically it was dead. There's no history there. And for that reason, you see, contrasting Nazareth with Jerusalem, Nazareth was a despised place. You see, when it says he shall be called a Nazarene, it indicates that he would be despised. Not only would he be despised, we know that the the Jews labelled him with the name Jesus of Nazareth. You know, the reason they did that was to prove that he wasn't the Messiah. Because the the Messiah, they would think, would be Jesus of Bethlehem. But they labelled, they stuck upon him the name Jesus of Nazareth because to that, to them, that was proof that he could not have been the Messiah because, as they said, no prophet comes out of Nazareth. No good thing ever comes out of Nazareth. And in the 24th chapter of the book of Acts, we have that, that word Nazarene uh, appears there in the 24th chapter of the book of Acts. In Acts 24 and verse 5 we read, For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And we see how they use that word, the Nazarenes, as a, uh, with contempt. They're, they're, they're trying to paint as black a picture as they can of Paul here. He's a pestilent fellow. He's not, not fit to live, they say. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And when it says there he, 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 he dwelt in Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's not referring to any particular individual statement of a prophet. You see, in the other places, we read in verse uh, 17, for instance, that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. In, um, in verse, verse 15 we read, that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying out of Egypt have I called my son. Matthew there is referring to a particular statement by a particular prophet. But here he says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He's not referring to any particular statement but just a general principle that the prophets foretold that the Lord Jesus Christ would be despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53, of course, is a notable example. In Isaiah 53 and verse, verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. There's a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And there the prophet is showing how the Lord Jesus Christ would be despised and rejected of men. He also says in verse 2 how he would grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And it's interesting to note that the word Nazareth, the name Nazareth, is derived from the Hebrew word Netzah, which means a branch. And in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ as a branch. Isaiah 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And so he was a branch. The word Nazareth is related to that word branch. And so here in Isaiah 53 where we read that he would grow up as a tender plant, He would be a branch out of the stem of Jesse, but he would be despised and rejected of men. There we have both of those aspects rolled together in one. In the fulfilment of those words of the prophets, 
He shall be called a Nazarene. You know, to the Jewish people, they looked upon him and said, well, he comes from Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah. His claims to be the Son of God must be false. Because where does it say the Messiah would come out of Nazareth? And triumphantly they would point their finger at him and, and, and at that aspect of him coming from Nazareth to prove that he was not the Messiah. But you see, to those who were prepared to seek out the beauty of Yahweh's way, they would find that in actual fact he was born in Bethlehem. But he was like a tender plant growing up out of the dry land of the nation of, of Judea at that particular time. And he was going to be that branch that was going to bring about the restoration of Israel and the ultimate establishment of the kingdom of God. So we see the, 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 the beauty of Yahweh's way. And he conceals these things beneath the surface. So that those who only look upon the surface of things uh, um, miss the real beauty of Yahweh's ways. For those who probe beneath the surface and saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was in fact born in Bethlehem, but he was moved up to Nazareth, that he might become despised and rejected by that people, but also that he might grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, being the, the, the promised Messiah of Israel. And so I believe, brethren and sisters, this section of Matthew chapter 2 is really a very beautiful piece of scripture. It not only shows us the providential care with which Yahweh watched over his son and of course watches over all his children. It's an indication of the providential care that can watch over us if we're endeavouring to grow up as true sons and daughters of God. But it shows us also the way in which the words of the prophets were fulfilled in the birth of this child and it shows us the way in which it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it is the honour of kings to search out a matter. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that we might give our minds to diligently search out the beauty of Yahweh's word in all its ways.